So it's great to be with you as we continue in our series from Ezra uh, entitled Coming Home. Uh, some of you are going to realize uh, that today we are skipping over uh, the end of Ezra chapter 3, and there's a good reason for that. Uh, Jonathan, who was due to be speaking today, has been pinged on track and trace, and so he's unable, he's having to self-isolate, so he's unable to be here. Um, but it's, uh, it's meant that we're going to look at some verses from Ezra chapter 4 and 5, we'll read those uh, in a little while, and uh, I'm, going to, but I'm going to be picking up a theme that Tim uh, spoke on last time he was with us last Sunday. So today's sermon title is Resistance to God's Work. Now, we're constantly told in today's society that tolerance is a key to unlocking a better world for everyone. John Piper says, it's unpopular in these days to take a strong stand against anything but intolerance. Bizarrely, our society, which preaches tolerance, is incredibly intolerant of those who worship the one true God, the God who rightly demands our wholehearted worship. Yet it only partly explains why worship is such a battleground. Behind the battle for worship lies the devil. He is the enemy of God, and he is the enemy of God's people, and he has been that through every generation. His aim from the very beginning has been to stop God's people worshipping him. And we see this most clearly through Jesus. When Jesus became a man and Jesus walked this earth, Jesus came as uh, God's answer, God's uh, uh, deliverer to set us free from all the ravages of what the Bible calls our sin. Jesus came and the, we're told the devil tempts him. Right at the start of Jesus' ministry, we read it in Matthew chapter 4. And what we see is that the devil, one of the devil's temptations is, uh, I, will, uh, I, will, uh, I will give you all of this. You will, you will have to avoid going to the cross if you just worship me. He was after Jesus' worship. And Jesus says this to him, Get away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I want us to keep in mind what Jesus says as we unpack this passage from Ezra. You see, 70 years before Ezra was written, Nebuchadnezzar had tried to destroy both the place of worship and the means of worship for God's people. In truth, he actually didn't need to destroy the temple to stop uh, the people of Israel worshipping because, in fact, they weren't really worshipping God anyway. They were worshipping all sorts of other gods. Behind the devil's tactic and behind all that Nebuchadnezzar was doing was the attempt to prevent God's people worshipping him to prevent genuine worship. Ezra is a reminder 
that God never gives up, that God is working behind the scenes to stir us and to provoke us to genuine worship. That is uh, the message, the big message of Ezra. Ezra shows us that God is working to draw his people home, to bring his people home to worship. But as they did that, they found that as they worshipped God, it provoked opposition. And we are going to find the same as we return to worship together. Ezra teaches us three lessons and three responses to help us handle the opposition that we're going to face. The first one is this, be wholehearted. This is what it says in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the family heads and said to them, let us build with you. For we also worship your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time King Ezra Hayadon of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other heads of Israel's families answered them, You may have no part with us in building a house for our God, since we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. You see, Ezra tells the people already living, uh, Ezra tells us the people living around Jerusalem had heard something. When God's people started uh, uh, worshipping God, it was precious and it was powerful. People were deeply impacted. Worship deeply impacts us. Some we're told at the end of chapter 3, shouted for joy. Others wept aloud. The noise was so loud that the people around heard it from a distance. And at first glance, it seems that they were intrigued, that they were looking to uh, offer to help build and continue the work of building the temple. And yet Ezra calls them enemies. God's enemies. But isn't any offer of help good news? Isn't anyone offering to join with us and come alongside us and uh, support us? Isn't that good? Surely that's a good thing. Shouldn't we be thrilled at, uh, uh, when people in the city want to support what we're doing? What about partnership and collaboration? Aren't they good things? Well, yes, sometimes they are. But Ezra is saying to us, when it comes to the worship of God, don't compromise. As the story unfolds, the true colours of these people starts to come out. You see, the people, these people worship their own gods as well as the gods uh, the God of Israel. We call that syncretism today. It means tolerance. It means that they were tolerant of all sorts of religions. And God, the God that the people of Israel worshipped was just one other God. We would call it perhaps fusion. 
I don't know if you've watched cookery programs, but if you've been watching cookery programs, it talks about cookery fusion, where different types of cuisines from different uh, countries and parts of the world are amalgamated together. Fusion of, of cooking. Well, it may work in cookery, but it doesn't work with the worship of God. It's a disaster. Only the wholehearted worship of God will do. Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no room for anything in our worship that introduces Jesus plus something else. There can be no fusion of Jesus with other religions, with other cults, with other ideologies. Anything that adds to Jesus and Jesus alone. Even our own effort. Jesus plus our efforts doesn't rescue us from our own sin, the Bible says. We are saved, the Bible says, by grace alone, by the kindness of God alone, the mercy of God alone. We did nothing uh, to make ourselves attractive to God. It was God in his great mercy that sent his son for us. That is the good news of the gospel. We are saved by grace alone. And God rightfully demands, therefore, that we worship him alone. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 to 15, it says this. Fear the Lord your God, worship him. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. The fact that we'd rather worship created things or things that are, are, are come out of our own imagination is a tragedy. It, it is an offense in heaven. Failure to worship God through Jesus is the heart, at the heart of what the Bible calls sin. What about us? What about us? Are we trying to add something to Jesus about what we do? Is it about how hard we try? If I read my Bible, God will love me more. No, 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 no. God loves you because Jesus died for you. And if you put your trust in him, that is enough. Eventually, we see this people's agenda. It was all about tolerance. If Jesus gave himself completely for us when he came to this earth, God's Son becoming human flesh and going to the cross for us when he'd done nothing wrong, bearing God's right punishment of our wrongdoing, that we might be forgiven. If he did that wholeheartedly for us, how much more should we wholeheartedly give ourselves to him? Nothing should come before him in our lives. Not money or wealth, position or power, self or pleasure. He is to be our all in all. God will not accept compromise in the area of worship. In the 18th century, the Moravians uh, saw an incredible revival uh, where people were being, many people were being saved, a move of God. And uh, the leader of the uh, Moravian movement was uh, someone called Count von Zinzendorf. And his motto was Jesus, Jesus only. 
And it became uh, almost like the motto for the Moravians. And thousands and thousands of Moravians uh, traveled far across the world uh, to reach people with the good news of Jesus. But they were driven by one thing alone, and that was their love for Jesus Christ. Everything is secondary to loving God. We love him with our possessions and all that we have because he gave us everything in the first place. We worship him however difficult the circumstances have been. And these, this last 60 months, the circumstances have been so difficult. But we love him in the midst of the circumstances because we know that he's sovereign and he's placed us in the place that we live. And we know that he's in control and we know that he's working all things together for our good that he has ordered our, ordered our days. And we are looking forward to a better world. Wholehearted worship of God is seen in the attitude to everything we have and everything we do. Putting Jesus first gives us no excuse for being bad parents, poor employees, or uncaring citizens. We're to do everything, Paul says in the, to the Colossians, because we're doing it for him. Our love for God should impact how we treat everybody, everyone we meet. Let's not compromise. Let's be wholehearted. Maybe we see something of ourselves in the attitude of these people that we've read about. Is worship more about uh, God uh, or is it about us and our feelings? What happens when we don't get what we want are we intolerant? Are we instead, are we supportive? Are we supportive when we see uh, things happening that we don't like in church? Or are we undermining? Is singing about us and our voice and the songs we like, or is it about honouring the God that we worship? Is worshipping uh, uh, about serving others, or is it about the badge and the profile and the position what happens in our heart when someone else has a great opportunity that we would have loved? Are we envious? Are we jealous? Or is our response instead to pray for them and say, God, thank you for giving that person that position. God, I pray that you would so bless them in what they're doing that they would be a blessing to me and the rest of the church. What happens in work when someone gets the job that you were hoping for, the position you were hoping for? Is your prayer, God, thank you that they've got this job. I pray that they would succeed and make this office a better place. I want to support them and help them to the best of my ability. God wants us to be people like that. Ezra wrote and talked about people who weren't qualified to be part of rebuilding the house of God, but they could have been. Don't let us fall into that trap. Be wholehearted. The second thing that we see from this passage that is an antidote to opposition is that we're to be encouraging those who encourage others. And this is what it says in Ezra chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. 
Then the people who were already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to act against them to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. You see, the opposition, having failed to infiltrate and water down what God's people were trying to do, they resort to overt pressure. They try to discourage them, to make them fearful of carrying on, to want to give up. It's a form of psychological warfare. It's something that we see around us all the time. And if you know anything of the Second World War and the First World War, uh, sides, both sides used to drop uh, what they call letter bombs, letter bombs which were uh, passing out uh, information, trying to discourage and lower the enemy's morale. Everybody's looking to influence the way that we think, especially in the media today. And discouragement undermines our worship of God. Worship of God can become a war of attrition. And behind it, the devil wants to wear us down and cause us to give up. Someone once said this, the great causes of God are not defeated by the hot assaults of the devil, but by the slow, crushing, glacier-like mass of thousands and thousands of indifferent nobodies. The answer to this is encouragement. What about us? When was the last time that we went out of our way to encourage someone else? Encouragement is something that is sorely missed in the world around us today. And sadly, that can be the case in church too. We should be better than the world around us. Paul tells the Thessalonians that they're to encourage others, those around them, at every opportunity. You see, opposition takes all sorts of forms, lies, half-truths, fear, mockery, uh, questioning decisions, and all can be debilitating, can cause us to want to be passive and give up. And we've all experienced that. You will know what that feels like. The phone rings and you see the name of the person on the phone and your heart sinks. Or that email or message pings onto your phone and you look and you think, oh no, what are they going to say? And your heart sinks. You see, we need people to encourage us. God expects us to be those who encourage one another at every opportunity. We read in the book of Acts about someone called Barnabas. And his name means son of encouragement. And the next time we read about him in Acts chapter 11, the uh, early church leaders had sent him to a city called Antioch because they'd heard that there were great things going on. And when Barnabas gets there, it says he saw the evidence of the grace of God all around him. And immediately, the first thing he did was to encourage them. He didn't say, no, no, you're not doing this right. You're, oh, don't, do, don't do it like that. Oh, we, we do it like this in Jerusalem. No, no, oh, no, no, I wouldn't do it quite like that. No, no, he encourages them. 
He encourages them to press on in God, to be wholehearted, to love God with all their heart and soul and mind. God wants us to be like that. You see, Ezra tells us that discouragement went on. It eventually uh, involved, we read uh, in the coming verses, that it involved hiring people to frustrate God's people, to work against them. And at times when we feel like everyone's against us, we do, uh, uh, we do what it says in the New Testament. We look to Jesus, our great hope. We draw encouragement from how Jesus handled opposition. He was opposed at every turn. And yet he never responded aggressively. He never lashed out. He resisted those that spoke against him not with words, but with grace and love, and he overcame. One commentator says, The weapons of our warfare are spiritual, and the victory of the cross was won by loving and sacrificial self-giving rather than by confrontation. Eventually, we read that these people lodged an accusation against God's people. We see that in verse 6. That's more sinister than it may seem. The word accusation comes from the same root word as the word for Satan, which means, we're told in uh, Revelation chapter 12, he is the accuser of the brethren. He is the accuser. He comes to accuse. And it underlines what's really going on in this this, uh, book in Ezra. The enemy is working against God's people, and we see that clearly here. It's part of what Paul tells the Ephesians is the devil's schemes. The devil's looking to undermine the work of God. As a result of this letter, uh, the letter that these people wrote to the powers of the day, the work stopped. They stopped building the temple. And the rest of Ezra chapter 4 is is actually not about uh, the the, the walls of the temple not being built, but it goes on to talk about what happens in the book of Nehemiah that comes later. And it's all about the walls of the city being built and the opposition that the people face when they're building the walls of the city. And the point that Ezra is wanting us to get and catch hold of is despite the people's faithfulness, Opposition continued week after week, month after month, year after year. The devil never gives up. And so we need to faithfully hold on to God and all his promises in the midst of that. We're facing a season where government restrictions seem to have gone on and on and on. And even now we're not quite sure what it's going to look like at the end of June and the beginning of July. We don't know what it's going to mean for corporate worship. But behind all of it, just as in Ezra's day, we need to know that there is an enemy of God who's looking to stop the worship of God. He's opposed to all that God stands for. And so we need to be encouraged in these days that even uh, though we're faithful, It won't stop opposition. We need to get that settled in our heart. 
But what we need to have resounding in our heads is this. In the end, God wins. We need to be those who encourage. Finally, we need to be those, we need to be people of word and spirit. And in Ezra chapter 4, verses, verse 24, it says this, and I'm going to read through to the first two verses of chapter 5. Now the construction of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and remained at standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. But when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, and Jeshua, son of Josadak, began to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, helping them. When churches get stuck, they need a breakthrough. I've had the privilege of being in three churches uh, through my life. And at various points, each one of those churches has got to a place where it's felt that they, we were stuck and we needed a breakthrough. And in those moments when we're crying out to God for a breakthrough, we, we're crying out for God to speak through his word, the living word of God, the Bible. And we're looking for the promises of God that are rich and precious and are there to help us. And we're also looking for the Spirit of God to move. We're looking for God's Spirit to be poured out. We're looking for God's power to work on the promises of God. We are a people of word and spirit. You see, Ezra tells us the work of rebuilding the house of worship. He tells us that it was stuck for 16 years. And in the intervening time, God's people simply settled Ezra is a reminder that there is only one answer. We need God to break through. We're told the stalemate was broken when God, the God, we're told, who was over them. That's the phrase that Ezra uses, God who is over them. I want us to know God is over us. God is with us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. God is over us. And we're told that prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, helped them. They brought the word of God. They prophesied the word of God. Promises that were uh, for these people. They did this by reminding them what God had already promised. And challenged them to believe that God would finish what he'd started. God had started this work. God had called them to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And God was going to finish what he started. And suddenly as they started to prophesy, as they started to speak God's word to his people, faith started to rise in their hearts. What about us? Maybe we've been going through difficult times. Maybe we feel we're in a place of stalemate. Maybe we feel that, maybe we feel a bit abandoned. God is over us. He has not abandoned us. He is with us and God's promises are that the work he started in you, he will bring to completion. God wants to stir faith in your hearts for the days ahead. God is over us. I don't know if you can think back to 
May this year. May was supposed to be the start of our summer. Supposed to be glorious May. Well, it was cold and it was cloudy and we didn't see the sun. And in those moments when you're, you're thinking, oh, is this, it? is this another British summer? Is this what it's going to look like? Beyond the clouds, the sun was still shining. And as June has come, we've started to see the sun break through and the, the sunlight break through and we're feeling the warmth of the sun and people are able to wear T-shirts and shorts and Suddenly we've seen God break through. And we may feel that the clouds are over us at the moment, metaphorically. We may feel that we're, uh, uh, it's been tough for us. But I want us to know that the sun, God's promises still shine over us. God is still over us. God is still at work. God has not given up. He will break through. Haggai prophesied to Zerubbabel that up until then, God's people had been effective. He says, think carefully about all your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. He challenges them to focus on building God's house instead of settling for nice homes. What about us? Maybe we feel we've planted much but harvested little. We haven't been fruitful. God is saying, focus on building my house, the local church. Haggai's promise is that if they listened to the word of God, the glory of the past would be far exceeded by what God would do in the future. This is what Haggai says in verse 9 of chapter 2. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first. What about us? Maybe we're feeling that these days for the church have been quite dark. I want to tell you that the best days for God's church are yet to come. We are yet to see them. That is the promise of God. Jesus has promised he is building his church and the gates of hell would not prevail. Zechariah promised that God would break through, as we heard last week, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We are looking for God to break through. Maybe you're looking for God to break through in your circumstances. Look to the God whose promises stand firm and the God who is able to fulfill those promises in your lives. The circumstances of this last year may look bleak, but God is over us. He will do what he's promised. He will build his church, and we need to be a people of word and spirit. And who knows what God will do. In the face of insidious and ferocious opposition, we're to be those who are wholehearted, we're to be those who are encouragers of others. We're to be people of word and spirit. These may still be difficult days, but we come to a God who wins. Let me finish with this quote. When we come to an apparent graveyard of our hopes, we need to renew our trust in our God who knows his way out of the grave. Let me say that once more as we finish. When we come to an apparent graveyard of our hopes, we need to renew our trust in a God who knows his way out of the grave. Let me encourage you, wherever you're at, right now, reach out your hands to God and ask God to break through for you. Ask God to fulfill his promises to you 
and by his Holy Spirit to turn your circumstances around. It doesn't mean that everything's going to work out just in the way you expected. It doesn't mean that there won't be any more opposition. But I want you to know that God is with you. God is with us. And God wins.